Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. My parents had music parties in the house growing up. I would listen to music through my mother's womb and we used to have so many people in our house all the time. It's a very Indian thing, right? People would just turn up at your door. They don't even call. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, it was great. It was very normal to have tons of people in our home and people would bring their harmoniums and just come and sing and play. And actually some of the great musicians would be in my home growing up. And so just music was all around me ever since I was young. It's just part of the backdrop of life. Hello, I'm Radhika Vakaria, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today we are talking to Radhika Vakaria. She is a accomplished musician, and she also happens to be my yoga teacher. And it was really amazing to spend time with her and to get to know her on a much deeper level. Yeah, Sharon, I first learned that you are very delinquent at your (laughs) yoga practice. But no, that's not what we talked about. It was really, I didn't know what to expect going into this conversation. We do like to bring people from our lives who have different perspectives. And while Radhika and I have some surface level similarities. Well, you're... you're, Indian families, the Africa connection, the UK connection. Yeah. Yeah, that was really kind of neat. I didn't realize how common, I mean, not that it is super common, but the fact that both of you have very similar. It's not uncommon. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not uncommon. There's a, there's a diaspora from East Africa of Indian people who went to work in East Africa and then later left for the UK, which is my mom's side of the family. But even broader than that, there was, she grew up in the UK. I obviously grew up in the States and the childhood experience with music and with not family gatherings so much as community gatherings, some similarities, some differences. And I I really enjoyed how much we talked about music because, and we'll put a link in the show notes, Radhika is a musician. She Mm -hmm. has performed at a spiritual level, but also on a popular level with a lot of people you may have heard of in the Indian music space, but even performing with uh, famous jazz musicians and Prince. But 
music is a spiritual thing for her. And we talk a lot about how that came to be, how she was singing before she was speaking, how she was like, yeah, just, uh, it was a very interesting take and that, which has led her on a very interesting path in, in her life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as someone who is a student of hers in a spiritual practice, what what I took away from the conversation was just how it is even beyond spirituality. Like she she actually talks a lot about vibration and humanity and how all of that works together in conjunction with music. So I think it was just such a it was a really uplifting conversation. And like you, Raman, I didn't know where this was going to go, but I really enjoyed. But I'm glad we went there. Yeah, me too. So here's our friend Radhika, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Radhika, we're so happy to have you on this show. Welcome to Modern Minorities. Thank you so much for having me. So Radhika, I know you as a yoga teacher. That's how we met. And you're in my house several times a week at 5.30 a.m., but... (laughs) So Radhika, where are you from? I'm from London. And you probably get asked this a lot, right? So the next question always is, where are you really from? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when you double down on London and you're like, yeah, you're like, well, I'm, um, from, I'm from Southall. Come on. like, I'm, you know. from, I'm from London. It's really sunny there. And I just spend a lot of time outside. That's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> My grandparents are from the north of India. My parents are actually born in Kenya and Uganda. I think my mom would correct you and say it's Kenya. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I forget that my accent is is becoming very, very strange living in America. <laughs> Kenya, yes, Kenya. They're, they're very keen over there for us to say it correctly. <laughs> when did they leave that part? Is it around like the Idi Amin time? My father left before that, but a lot of the community left during that time and afterwards. But obviously, my mom wasn't really affected by all of that and came when she was in her early 20s to the UK. They didn't okay. come together. They they met in London. All right, cool. And how old were you when, well, I guess, what was that like? Like, I guess, you know, I always thought like being an Indian kid in America, when I went to England, I was like, okay, there's... Indian kids, there's Indian kids here, but it's a very different part of society. It's like a more integrated, but at the same time, like separate part of society because there's so many more Indian people in the UK. (laughs) (laughs) I just consider myself really fortunate because my family was able to combine our Indian background and fuse that with the Western way of life really well. And I think because my parents were brought up in Kenya and Uganda, we had a little bit more of a buffer in terms of transitioning the culture from India to the West. So we were able to like pick and choose the parts that really were fun and resonated with us in a, in a really deep way. So everything just got a little bit easily melted together. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. It's actually, you know, as I went to London, how old was I? I was in college at the time. And I was told that the best Indian food was in London. And I didn't understand what that meant until I was there. And I was like, oh, I get it now. It's, it was completely kind of mind boggling of how there were just pockets of communities. And it just wasn't something that I had assumed or, or even thought about. Yeah. Well, first of all, Indian food rules. It's, oh, it's so good. <laughs> and I'm, I really miss really good Indian food. Yeah. I think when my father came to London, his friend had one of the, oldest Indian restaurants. It was near uh, Piccadilly Circus, 
and it was the only Indian place. And so many people would come who wanted to find their people. And my father met a lot of his longtime friends in that restaurant. And it just grew a, the community that we knew. He met mm-hmm. all of his musician friends and that was their kind of safe haven place. And then as the years went by, the locals would find it. And so it, it, it just was a very kind of organic unfolding for them. They obviously had difficult times coming to London and it was tough. What they went through is we can't even imagine what they went through. They really were the first wave of soldiers, as my mom likes to say. They took a lot on the chin for us guys to be able to live and experience life the way that we do. So your dad was a musician? Yeah, he made music. He was an incredible singer. He actually, my parents had music parties in the house growing up when I was in my mother's womb. so fun. Mm -hmm. I would listen to music through my mother's womb and we used to have so many people in our house all the time. It's a very Indian thing, right? People would just turn up at your door. They don't even call. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, it was great. It was just very, it was very normal to have tons of people in our home and people would bring their harmoniums and just come and sing and play. And actually some of the great musicians he used to play with, some really iconic people would be in my home growing up. And so just music was all around me ever since I was young. It's just part of the backdrop of life. Did you ever feel different when you were growing up or were you always kind of surrounded within, especially in your formative and your younger years, did it ever occur to you that you were different from anybody else around you in London? Yeah. People not having music parties. (laughs) (laughs) I know what I meant to say really is people who weren't Indian, but okay, that too. (laughs) Do any non-Indian people have, not to be mean or exclusive, but I got what music parties were because I've been around where the budgets and the Bollywood themes come out at like the weekend dinner party at auntie and uncle's house. But do other people do that? I don't think, I don't think other no, people do that, no, do they? I didn't know, but yeah, that was not my background. My parents were also weren't musicians, but even if they were, I don't think a Chinese music party would even be close to what I could imagine an Indian music party. Would no, to be like. clear, my parents and none of the uncles and aunties in Alabama were musicians either. But somehow at the Daryanani's house, someone had a tabla or a harmonium <laughs> <laughs> and let the guzzles come out. Just like <laughs> What's funny, I think that Indians, in some way, part of our genetics are still stuck in that time zone because I don't know Indian people that go to sleep at a decent hour. Seriously, any excuse to sleep <laughs> up through the night. So yeah. Keep pouring another kettle of tea. I know, I know. Yeah, we just I'm gonna say something that probably have social services turning. <laughs> My parents' friends would call on them at two in the morning or one in the morning when they would shut their shops up and say, come on, come to central London. Let's meet at a hotel and have tea and pastries and stuff. And my parents would take us out of bed, still sleeping. I just, I just found this out. I just remembered this. And they used to put us in the car and take us to like (laughs) the landmark hotel to have chai and pastries at nighttime. And we would sit up in this London Marylebone hotel while our parents would socialize and then go to school the next morning. Oh my goodness. And still <laughs> been and still great be alert. training for I your early and, 20s. <laughs> I, I know. And then still be alert for school because we're good Indian kids and we have to get good grades, right? But growing up, same thing. There were a handful of families and we'd go over for the proper dinner party where all the Indian people get together. And my parents, if it was at some of their closest friends' house, we would stay we'd be like there for the after party and more cups of tea. And I remember this one family, the Buddhas, 
mom and dad would be staying up and Niven, the son and I, we would just stay up and watch Saturday Night Live because we're up and our parents are up and they're not monitoring us. They're having tea talking about the good old days. And then I'd go to bed at Niven's house. My parents would actually leave at two in the morning and not wake me up. So I just spend the night and they'd come get me in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Abandonment issues right there. No, it's just like these people were our family. They were our extended family and they were the connection back to the motherland or the mother culture. And, and like the Bhutas weren't even the same kind of Indian we were, but we were the only Indians here. But what I love about your version of the story is because I think the Indian population is just so much more vast and honestly diverse in the UK. It's, oh, my mom and dad were musicians and their friends were shop owners. And we'd go to a hotel and meet up versus these very kind of closed network sort of things that we had to do in America. Yeah, it's a very, very playful way of just experiencing each other and kind of feeling a little bit of support from the community. It didn't matter what anybody did. We were just all in this collective experience. We, My parents came to London. They met and they fell in love in London and they were just trying to find their way. That's all they were trying to do. So yeah, our communities grew so big, so big. And I would be, when I was a baby, they would take me to a community gathering and I I, I was just fine wherever I was. And they would literally just walk in the door and hand me off to someone. And then three (laughs) hours later, I would just be plonked back in their arms, completely just fine. I'd be like, okay, let's just go home now. I would just do the rounds in people's arms. And there was no problem with that. And nobody was worried about it. And I feel that that really gave me a lot of freedom and just safety in being with people, even if I didn't know them. There's just trust in the community. Yeah, it reminds me of a lot of my childhood too. I grew up in Chinatown, and so we were always around many different Chinese families and very similar thing, banquets or weddings where you would just literally have sometimes a hundred people in a room at a restaurant and kids running around and underneath tables playing hide and seek. And it's just that kind of chaos, that community chaos where everyone just knows each other, even if you're not genetically family and genetically related, you're still family. And just grandma's feeding other grandbabies and and things like that. There is something quite special about that kind of connection. Yeah. And our cult sorry, our culture, it's really weird for me to meet somebody and not call them auntie or uncle. Even if I've I've never met them before, if I meet someone's parents and they're Indian, even if they're Asian, I'll meet someone who's Chinese or older and I will still call them auntie or uncle. I'll just still do that. Radhika, I don't know if this has happened to you yet, but you know what the worst part is? When your friend's kids start calling you uncle or auntie. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. It's really awful. I just didn't see that coming. Did you? You I'm didn't like, see that coming, did you? I'm like, but I listen to rock and roll. I got a podcast. I can't be an uncle. <laughs> I know. And you're just like, damn it. Oh God, it's happening. But it's, it's so, it's so adorable. So dad's a musician. What did mom do? Well, dad worked, but then he was also a musician. Oh, wow. So what, what, what did they actually, what, what was the day jobs for mom and dad? Insurance for my dad. We came to London with like 300 pounds on a suitcase and started right from the bottom up. Right. And ended up selling insurance and then singing. And he sang for Indian ministers, when they would come to London, he was invited to go and be a playback singer in India. But he loved his family too much. He would never leave us. So, But he was really, really respected in London for his voice. Incredible voice would make you melt. And then my mother worked, uh, she was a civil servant. So she worked for 
the government. And then on the side, she had, she always had something. She would do florist jobs or wedding flowers or, or sell this or that. She'd always have something else that she was doing in the evening or at the side. They worked really, really hard. Our house, when they brought it, my mother, I remember them telling me they bought our family home for £6,000 and they had a mortgage on it for £6,000. That today would be about $8,000, $8,500. And you think about that. And they had to have a mortgage. And they sat on boxes for the first year and a half and they didn't have carpet and the draft would come in through the floor. And it just makes you realize how, realize how humble a beginning they had. So yeah, they worked really, really hard, but it was such a joyful life. And they had lodgers to help pay the mortgage. So again, there were more people coming in and out of our house. <laughs> but yeah, they worked, they worked really hard, but they also had this beautiful balance of family time too. What did they want you to be when you were growing up and what did you end up doing? Mm, that's a story. So I, I wanted to be a surgeon. I wanted to be a cancer specialist because cancer is very rife in my family. And it was very, very interesting. When I went to fill out my UCAS form, at the time it was a UCAS form, I really remember this. My father came up behind me, put his hand on my shoulder and said, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, if you do this, that's going to be another 11 to 12 years of your life. And you love doing so many things. Are you sure you want to do this? Because you won't have time for all of those other things. And I looked up at him and I just remember thinking, are you really an Indian father? Yeah. <laughs> are you talking me out of being a doctor, dad? <laughs> I'm like, you have lied about my heritage to me because this makes no sense. And he just said, simply, my dear, he said, you just have to really take this seriously. Now, I think the plan backfired on him because he, he was hoping that I would be a dentist so that I could have my time, but have a bit more of a structure. And I basically, it backfired. And I said, well, if I'm not going to be a surgeon, I don't want to do anything to do with medicine. So I went and studied mathematics. And at the time, everyone was trying to be in the investment banking field. So I went to study economics because I was very good at mathematics, right? Naturally, because I'm Indian, good of at course. mathematics. It's, it's in your genes. It's yeah, in your DNA. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I went and studied economics and that's what I went to do. But actually my first year, I wanted to go to the Royal Academy of Music. I decided economics wasn't for me. And my parents said, you know what, finish your degree. Just finish your degree and then you can go go and do, right, Raman? Yeah. <laughs> Classic, yeah. get the backup, get the backup. Classic, yeah. get the backup. So yes, it was go and do that, then you can go and do what you want. And then I went and did what I wanted. Because spoiler alert, you are not a hedge fund manager. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't think, unless that's your side hustle. <laughs> I'm kicking myself now. <laughs> every, every, we have these very phenomenally nice people, very close old family friends. They're like family. And the daughter married a hedge fund manager. And we meet up with them every once in a while. And their kids are beautiful. Our kids are love playing with their kids, all this stuff. But they have a lifestyle that's kind of two orders of magnitude different from ours. <laughs> and the running joke, and, and my wife and I are like completely happy with our life. We are Maslow's hierarchy of needs, needs were totally self-actualized. But there's like this running joke every time the door shuts as we leave them in the cab or the subway. I'm like, honey, I'm sorry, I'm not a hedge fund manager. <laughs> <laughs> as we leave the second apartment or something. But so no, that's not what you did. And what you're doing is very different and, and very beautiful and kind of spiritual. I mean, one, tell us what you're doing. But more importantly, 
how did that journey happen from not doing the backup of mathematics and banking and finance? Well, my first sign was that it was really hard to get out of bed to get to work when I was in investment banking. It was really, I just didn't have the will to do it. And I've always been artistic since I was young. I could sing before I could speak. Literally, I could sing perfect melody and not even know what I was saying. I definitely inherited that from my father. And what happened was, it was actually my brother. My brother and I have a very, very close relationship. And he's my biggest champion. And he said to me, he goes, look, you don't enjoy doing this. And my brother was actually in investment banking. He said, Rod, seriously, you don't have to do this. Just go and do what you love. You love the world. You love music. You love art. Just go and do it. And I'll always be here. You're meant to express yourself. So slowly, what I started to do was I made the transition. I started to work for finance arms of music companies. So music record labels, because I thought, oh, let me, let me try and respect where, where I've come from and what I've done and utilize that in some way. And the more I tried to do that, just the more it didn't feel good. So at nighttime, I used to go to the open mic places. And, you know, <laughs> I used to go into open mic places and not know what the hell I was doing. I sang a little bit in university as well. So friends would encourage me. And I just, I worked in the day at an investment bank. At nighttime, I used to go at 11 p.m. till about two in the morning and wait to have my turn to sing on stage and practice. And I just loved it. I don't know where I got the energy from. And I did that for a couple of years. And then, yeah, as I said, I worked for record labels. And then one day I just was like, you know, I just don't want to do this anymore. And then I got introduced to someone who was a producer and they just went full time into the singing on the live gig circuit. And that was very difficult especially between me and my father, because as you guys know, right, our parents, our parents went through so much to come to the West. They worked really hard and everything they want is just for us to be safe and secure, right? You guys must know that. And so it was difficult. It was difficult. Even my, my father was an artist. His main thing was like, look, she's a girl. She's a woman. She's going out late at night. He was just really concerned for my safety. So that was tough, but in a way, I had my brother and my mom, and I knew the artist's soul inside my father. And he always regretted not pursuing his dream. And in a way, I was doing it to honor him and what he never got to do. I'm going to try not to cry now because he passed away a long time ago. So in a way, I knew I had to do it. And yeah, it just unfolded from there. And I met people, you know, I met so many people, amazing people. And at the time I was the only Indian kid, only Indian young person doing this. Everyone else was black or white. <laughs> no, but no other Asian background people doing it. But I just did because when I sing, oh, when I sing, there's nothing else. You guys must have that, right? Do you guys have that? Yeah. I think yeah, I think it is a journey for a lot of people. You you find those things early, but not the noise of the world, but the expectations of the world. And I observe this. And then later on in life, maybe you find it again, and you kind of have that self actualization, and you can find the space for it. But as a father, you see that in your kids. You're you're trying to find out what are the things to kind of pour gasoline on. What are the the things that that light them up? Because there are no preconceived notions. You're still learning the way of the world and what the expectations of the world are. But yeah, I find myself thinking a lot more about that. The older I get, 
And it's not a thing of regret, right? It's a, okay, well, that's the thing. How do you make the space for it? And so I think what's really beautiful is you found that earlier. So I, I actually want to ask, when was that? Because there's kind of, it sounds like there's two, two pivotal moments. And I hate to probe here, but how old were you when your father passed away? And then how old were you when you had that realization, that conversation with your brother or the, I'm in the room with no other Indian people doing this work, or this is that place for me. Walk me through kind of where, how that fits into kind of your, your growing up. Yeah. So it's bigger than those moments, to be honest, because- Yeah, of course. They're milestones, was, if anything. Yeah. Because actually growing up, I never felt like I belonged to the Indian community. It was very strange because I was so different. In school, the Indian kids weren't really into what I was into. You know, I started playing piano when I was six and I played classical music. <laughs> I was into Beethoven and Brahms and Chopin at the age of six. Not many Indian kids were into that. I would play all of the sports. I would be so busy with multicultural activities as well as things that the Indian community just wasn't into. So in a way, I kind of always felt like I had one foot outside the community. So going into doing something where there weren't any Indians, that was that didn't really phase me too much in terms of the comfort level of, say, stepping out of the community, because I always felt like I was kind of out of it in some way. I always knew that self-expression was really important. And I did get that from my father. Arts, one of the things that helped that community come over is their shared love for music because it connected them back to something from where we're all from. So it was very much alive. In terms of my brother speaking to me and supporting me, he always has. It was it was around when I was about 22, 23. He said, don't do the investment banking thing. Just please don't kill yourself. <laughs> Don't don't lie to yourself because I have to. No, I'm kidding. My brother just, he really encourages people who have something and to really kind of cultivate that and nourish that. My father passed away a few years later and it was interesting. He never fully told me what he thought of me doing music. I thought he was disappointed actually a lot of the time because he just was, he couldn't connect with the way I was having to do it, right? I was going out late at night. And again, it's the safety issue. He just didn't, he didn't feel comfortable with that. And actually, wow, you guys are good. You, you pull out emotion. It was when he actually passed away. And I remember at his funeral, two of his longest, longtime friends have known him since he was a kid in Uganda, came to me and said, do you know how proud your father was of you for doing music? And that was a huge moment for me. And I think the thing is, is our parents, and tell me if you guys have this too, I think there is a part of our parents. I remember my dad said he doesn't like to compliment too much because he doesn't believe that anything comes of being driven by ego. It's really important to keep people humble. And I think there's a part of our parents that want us to drive from a place that is purely from us and what we want to do, because if we don't 100% establish and embrace that need to express or that the choices that we make in our life from us, then if anyone comes along and criticizes us, then we will be shaken. So it cannot come from outside. So I think my father was, in a way, doing me a favor by not telling me. 
so that his little lion, because he knew I had a lot of fire. I've always had a lot of fire and spirit. And my mom does too. I get that from her. He really wanted me to own that. So in a way it was a gift. The struggle was a gift. That's amazing. I can relate to that for sure. I think I grew up in a household where my parents were also very conservative with compliments. And even even as I had my own kids, I, I found my parents telling me, don't tell them that they're smart too often or don't tell them that they're the best. It's not good for a kid to to think that about themselves or or to be looking for that outward approval. And yet as a child, and I mean, even as an adult child, right? You want to know that your parents approve of your choices. There's a part of you that that just wants to know that you're on the right path or especially in your case where you're on this, there were certain expectations for you professionally and then making that big pivot. You just wanted to know that they were going to be okay with that, whatever that meant. So that must have been such a validating moment to hear that at his funeral. There's so many similarities, right, Sharon? It's actually so nice to speak to people who who get that. My mother was always on the side of, I want my children to be happy. And I think all of our parents do. And it's interesting. My father would still say, though, he would still always say, you can do anything. If you put your mind to it, you are capable of doing anything you want, anything you want. But he wasn't specific. He kind of left it open. So he loved me so much, so much, but he wouldn't specify and say it in that way. And actually, you know what? I think it's a good thing because we don't necessarily need specificity from our parents. We just want to know we're loved. It's a show, don't tell sort of thing, right? Mm, mm -hmm. Because it's this tightrope. I feel this as a parent now. Definitely avoid the superlatives, right? I'm definitely, frankly, coaching my dad to not call his granddaughter pretty first, right? That's not (laughs) the first word you get to say Mm -hmm. about she's hilarious, but she's not the most hilarious, right? And I even catch, catch ourselves, my wife and I, there's some moments where you can't let her know what she just did was either hilarious or amazing, but show approval, right? Show love and approval. But it's just such a tricky, when you think about all the things your parents did say or didn't say, and how 20 on years later, it shaped you, right? Those things they said as a little kid, as a teenager, as a 20 year old, the compliment they did or didn't give, and how it shaped you. It becomes when I think about it, it becomes a real mind fuck. <laughs> like how, as I raise my child, but it's now it, I try to root it in principles, really show don't tell, because they're modeling their behavior as well on you. Show don't tell. Yeah. I mean, I got shown a lot of love, like a lot, lot of affection, cuddles, hugs, kisses, time. They gave us their time. It keeps you humble. Usually at a hotel in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know some people, some people question all the time. I mean, you, <laughs> it's great, but still time, right? It's still yeah, time. No, but it, and it made an impact on you. The, the moment and the experience, 100%. And I don't judge other parents, but it's my mom is trying to get me to drop our daughter off for a month with them. And yeah, it'd be nice to have a lot of time to myself and all my friends who get to read books and watch TV. (laughs) But I screw it. I can do all that stuff later because these are fleeting moments. There's my, my daughter just turned five and memories form at three, four, five, but solid memories are around five. And like, so kind of the memory clock begins at five. And I've been thinking a lot about that because the first five years of her life, that's ours. 
she's she'll, she maybe have pictures, she might have glimmers, but that's we're literally the only people who have that. And similarly, our parents only have those memories because we don't have them. And then there's kind of this sweet spot that we're in, call it five to five to fourteen, right? Where you actually want to hang out with your parents. <laughs> you know, you're not the rebellious teen. Yeah. Time spent and what you do at that time is something I'm increasingly aware of today. Yeah. I mean, so I just want to add that is that, you know, my father didn't take promotions at work because he wanted to pick us up from school every day. Yeah. 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 I mean, how incredible is that? He taught me tennis. He taught us every sport we know. He loved carpentry. I would be his little assistant. I would go under the floorboards <laughs> of the house. Sometimes he would need me to. It was time. We would go on holidays. Time. You just can't put a, you can't quantify that in any way. You know what I mean? It's honestly the most valuable resource it's we have. Most valuable. Greatest gift that my parents gave me is the time and the love. So today, you still obviously work in music. And from what I've learned in this conversation, getting ready for this conversation, spirituality and music is important for you. Devotional music, budgeons, right? Literally on your site is the Gayatri Mantra. Where did that spirituality come from? There's a lot of, I mean, you've worked with Prince, like, you know, like, uh, like, but he's very spiritual. <laughs> he is fair, fair, fair. Where did that come from? Why that angle to the music? Because Brahms, while it evokes spirituality, Chopin certainly does, but there are not as much, you know what I mean? It's just, where did that come from? How did that get there? And what does that mean for you? Well, the Gayatri Mantra, it's one of the most sacred mantras that was actually sung to me every night as I went to sleep. It's the first thing I knew. My mother would sing that to me. I think music in any form, it's a human expression. And human expression is spiritual. It is. Brahms by Brahms, Chopin, all of these people, for them to compose and download these incredible pieces that still live on today. That's coming from somewhere else. Nothing lives on that long without being downloaded from somewhere else. So it's deeply spiritual for me. And, and I think for everybody, everybody who connects to music, it's invoking, it's enlivening that. I have gone through a big journey with music and how I choose to express it. I still write in English, but everything that I've even written in English has this very metaphorical bent to it. I observed the world ever since I was a child. When I was five, I used to say, I mean, you must be familiar with this, Roman. Our parents would talk about religion in the house a lot, right? They would talk at the dinner table about religion. And I would defiantly say, when I was about five or six years old, nature is my God. Very odd thing for a child to say, I imagine, right? You know, I'd look at trees and I would see the winds and the rains. And, and even as I got older in school and you study about earthquakes and tornadoes and tectonic plates and just geography was fascinating to me. And I would just think there's this, just this powerful force behind everything. Yeah. God is in the space in between, right? Yeah. And we human beings are so tiny. And if nature wants to take us out, it can. And that's not a force that you, that's a force that you just ask to take care of you and that you respect. And there's something higher in everything. And so it's always been there in the, I guess, the underbelly of everything I do. But deciding to record music in Sanskrit and sing it, actually, I've sung for some very well-respected spiritual figures in the world. 
And I've sung live on the kirtan, the circuit, but mantra music and satsang. I've just found myself in those situations. And actually people asked me to record it. It's not, not something I actually intended to do. I grew up hearing devotional music and the sounds and the vibrations just make sense to me because I marinated in it when I was a child. And actually, it was my experience in 2010 being in Germany. I ended up in this audition for a show in Germany. I had no idea what I was auditioning for, you guys. It was just this random audition. I went to a warehouse in King's Cross. Someone called me and it ended up being for a show to do with the Indian culture meets Cirque du Soleil. And it was then that I actually got completely immersed back into the sounds of my culture in a way that was very performance-based. And I met so many people from India, and I was singing in four different languages. I had to learn to sing in Tamil phonetically. I used to sing in Tamil, dudes. (laughs) Tamil, (laughs) (laughs) which is a whole other thing. But it was the sounds, and it was just surrendering to that experience that it enlivened something in me again. And then I started to sing in Sanskrit a little more and found myself in these situations. Again, I had no intention of recording it, but people asked me to do it. And I think when people ask you, when you get repeatedly asked to do something, that's the universe kind of going, hey, I think it's time for you to do this. So that's why I recorded the album, Sapta, The Seven Waves. And yeah, it includes pieces that have meant a lot to me and been very helpful to me in my life and my journey so far. And what I wanted to give that to other people is they've helped me so much. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? I think so. It's so interesting because I grew up in a quasi-religious household with a lot of spiritual music playing, but I think, and again, the subtle differences, my cultural in experience was almost this microcosm within the broader point of assimilating into American culture. And that I don't think I'm spiritual. I know I'm not religious. I think about these things. I will go to temples. I will visit mosques in other countries. And I want to learn and dig into the history. And I think it's beautiful that the Gayatri Mantra is on the opening scene of Battlestar Galactica. And it means a lot, right? Like that's, <laughs> it literally plays before one of the greatest shows of all time, right? And it's beautifully rendered and sung, right? And I'm an atheist and I, I recite the Gayatri Mantra every time a plane takes off and I'm inside of that plane, right? Or a big moment in life is happening. So I do think spirituality is something that is broader than religion. But Absolutely. It can't, yes. It's it's really hard. It's really hard for me to kind of separate the two. But it's it's interesting to see how, and it doesn't inform my practice of whatever it is I do. But given the nature of what you do, I, th- I think it's really beautiful and interesting how it it's injected into the core and it informs everything that you're doing. That's that's really nice. Thank you, Roman. I mean, I think that every being is spiritual. Every person is. If someone's telling you I'm a spiritual person, I just don't think that needs to be declared, to be honest. Show, don't tell, right? (laughs) Yeah, show it. Don't tell it. If you are, that will come through in your actions and your words. And we don't have to be perfect to embody that. That's the thing, right? We're all just on this journey. We're all just trying to find our way. And you say you're an atheist, but then you say you recite the guy through mantra when a plane takes off. All of these I guess, prayers or hymns or whatever you call them. In Sanskrit, it's very interesting. It's a vibratory language. So actually, it's not a language by association. And what I mean is that in English or modern languages, we know what something is because somebody identified 
that thing and told you that this is what it's called, right? But in Sanskrit, which is a developed language, it's a vibratory language, which means that if you believe that your cells are vibrating with a certain frequency and energy, right? We're kind of discovering now, modern scientists are discovering that everything is it's energy, right? Everything's vibrating at a certain energy frequency. What these Vedic practices actually do by using the language of Sanskrit, that which you say, you become. I'm going to say it again. That which you say, you become. Because the syllables and the sounds that you're saying carry a certain frequency. And the more that you say those, the more that frequency begins to sync with the frequency in you and you start to vibrate with that frequency. So your cells literally become that which you say. That's why you feel it. You don't even need to know what it's saying. And that's why it brings you so much peace because at a cellular level, it is bringing you that peace. It's invoking the qualities of the sounds that you're saying within you. That's what it's actually doing in a scientific way. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Beautiful. So it's super, super powerful. So you don't even need to be religious to, to do it. I had a great, a great guru once said, and I love this saying, is that religion and spirituality are like the core of a banana and the banana skin. Yeah. Everyone's slipping on the skin. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But the core I, uh, is the spirituality. The one thing, and the way I kind of reconciled it with myself is religion is a cultural manifestation of faith. You can use faith and spirituality interchangeably here, but it's, and to me, that's how you achieve world peace. (laughs) It's like, okay, you practice your faith differently, but we both have faith in something that is bigger or not here. Now, to be fair, anyway, I like your banana metaphor better. (laughs) But, But no, because the slip, the slip is, that's the beauty of it, because the slip is what's causing all the problems. Yeah, you're slipping on the skin, right? There's slipping on this idea of religion. It's just there as a kind of container. Yeah, Yeah, but if if you're not actually eating that banana, then what are you doing, right? Yeah. How do you maintain your your spiritual practice? I mean, you live right now in Los Angeles, which really isn't the most spiritual center of anything. Have you had the tacos by the airport? That's I mean, completely okay. a spiritual there experience. To, there are spiritual experiences that you can have in LA, but it's not deeply a place with yes, spiritual tacos. Not a place with temples and shrines and other things. So how where do you charge your batteries? Where do you get that inspiration from? So actually, Sharon, it's very interesting. Since I came to LA, actually this is where it's been enlivened for me. It's not something I expected. I've actually dived deeper into the knowledge and the practice here. It's on the surface, LA is a place where people just would not think that this is something that would happen here. But any place in the world where you see a lot of creativity, actually underneath it is a lot of energy to support your growth, right? Because art and creativity is really spawned from this desire to experience oneself, and that's spirituality. So actually, Los Angeles, in a way, is very conducive for that. But you have to be very, you have to be very disciplined and careful about the company that you keep and make certain choices and really just choose wisely 
as the is it the knight in the last crusade said he also said the penitent man must pass or the penitent man <laughs> must pass always the penitent man must pass so yeah choose wisely and that can happen anywhere for you but yeah personally i have my yoga practice obviously you know i teach the ashtanga practice has given me so much it's helped me peel the layers i've met incredibly supportive individuals over here i've learned a lot about myself even from being in la by myself Trials and tribulations really reveals you spiritually. It tests you. I've been through some stuff here that I never expected to go through in my life. And that's probably one of the reasons why I came here. It's a shedding, a revealing of oneself. So in that way, I'm grateful to LA. I wouldn't be the person speaking to you on this podcast today if I hadn't been here. So mantra, a lot of mantra, a lot of meditation, carving that time out for myself. And actually, I, for someone who can talk a lot... <laughs> As I can. I actually spend a lot of time in silence. A lot of time in silence. Yeah. Just on silent meditations or actually I take some sometimes I do this thing called Monvrat. Raman, you might be familiar with this. It's actually a vocal fast. So instead of fasting with food or water, you fast with your speech. Because you use a lot of energy with your speech. So if you want your words to be more potent and your actions to be more potent. When you do take, when you do choose, then fasting with your speech is really good practice. One of the scariest things, and I've thought about this, I have not been on a silent retreat, but my best friend has been on a few. And we talk about it before and after. That is one of the scariest things to be alone with your own thoughts. Because when we verbalize, you can almost eject stuff and distract yourself with conversation. But to really be, and we've all had those sleepless nights where you're alone with your yourself. But it's it's nighttime. You're eventually going to fall asleep. So let your mind wander. Sometimes it might be two to three hours, but doing that for a prolonged period. And I'm not saying it's not a valuable thing to do, but it is it's up there with snakes with laser beams on their hands. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that gives more reason why you should try to do that. I think yes. you need Yes, I think that's a sign, Roman, that maybe you're in for you're due for a three day long silent retreat. <laughs> Come on, Raman, let's do it. Oh, you can you guys it. take the five-year-old. That's <laughs> fine. Let's. Well, I mean, if we can't be with our own thoughts, then how can we ask others to be with them? Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. Right? If you can't 100%. be with your own company, if you don't like your own company, then you can't ask anyone else to like it, right? What's there to be scared of? The world is so noisy. It's just so many distractions and. I mean, you're here. Everything it took to make you, you know, the chances of you being alive, everything it took for you to be here, that's precious. That's incredible. You should take the time to enjoy yourself. I mean, that could go many ways, you guys, when I say enjoy yourself. <laughs> but you should. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And it's so simple. You just close your eyes, be quiet. Radhika, you and I have talked a lot, actually, about race and the differences between your experiences in London back home and then being in the States. And one thing that you've told me is you've never felt like you were othered until you came to the United States. And I found that to be really interesting. Can you tell us more about that sentiment? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking that, Sharon. In the UK, it is a bit of a melting pot, especially London. So the way that I felt other in London is that I wasn't like all the other Indian kids growing up, right? So I guess in some way I have felt other, but in terms of race, 
not really in that big a way. Just as an individual, I always felt like there was something different for me. And was that in a good way or bad way? Was it I'm different because I'm special or was it, <laughs> like, am I different because I'm not, I'm different and, and I'm not as good as everybody else or? No, I was just better. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, of course. <laughs> That was a leading question. Of course, of course. No, I mean, you know, I was very talented growing up and I could do things. And girls, I had a real real trouble with girls. You know, I was very, very bullied when I was young, well into my teens, very badly. I won't, I won't share some of the things that happened, but they were quite bad. But again, I had loving parents, loving family, and I had all of these hobbies that didn't allow me to, didn't allow those experiences to become entrenched in who I am. But yeah, in terms of other... When I came to America, and I'm going to be careful when I say America, because California does not represent America. (laughs) It's very, very different across this country. So when I came here, I think a race is spoken about a lot more here. I don't remember it being spoken about so much growing up. We're a lot more integrated there, especially in London, and especially now. I mean, you walk down the street in London, you'll see the entire world pass you by in two minutes. And there's a lot, a lot of mixing going on. So, but here I actually noticed that there wasn't much mixing going on. And then just race is just spoken about a lot more here. So it comes to the forefront of how people speak about themselves and how they speak about issues. It's from that vantage point a lot more. So that's something that I noticed. And then for me personally, I haven't experienced racism or things where people would say something and I would go, oh, that's unusual, until I came here. And that's been interesting. (laughs) And specifically, what have you, what are some of those experiences like? I was in a, a pharmacy a couple of years ago and a gentleman came up behind me while I was waiting in line and said, hey, you're looking a bit dark. I think you could use some of this and handed me some sun lotion. And I just couldn't tell whether that was a joke or whether that was like... And I'm British, right? So we're all down for a bit of sarcasm, but that just didn't qualify or something that's a little bit of an un-PC joke because our sense of humor is a little bit different. I'm not saying that that's okay over there, but it was really hard because we like a little bit of a different sense of humor there. We kind of just jibe at everyone to a certain degree, just kind of diffuses tensions. It's kind of just sick, sick humor there. But here it just, it just didn't, it didn't land that way. But then I also didn't get angry about it or upset or let it ruin my day because it was just a silly thing that someone said. But again, I'm not someone who's received that a lot. So I don't know how I would feel if that happened on a regular basis. Right. You're more more likely to receive people thinking you're Kim Kardashian when you're wearing sunglasses. Oh God, yeah, I know. I get that. (laughs) That's actually really upsetting. That's more upsetting (laughs) than somebody thinking that I need sun lotion, to be honest. Great. <laughs> well, I just want to. I can I add something else to this conversation, you sure. guys? Because I think it's yeah. a really, really important point to make. I want to just touch on the Indian thing because I, I think this would be important for maybe your listeners. And it was an important lesson for me. If you have the time, can you share for a couple of minutes? Yeah, absolutely. So I remember I was in a relationship, and the person claimed that they loved me very much and they wanted to be with me for the rest of our lives, and. I remember having a conversation about yoga and what's happening with the appropriation of yoga, how it's being expressed in the West. And I was getting, not emotional, but, you know, a little heated about it. And they said, why does it bother you so much? And I said, well, because it's from my culture and I'm Indian. And this is something that really hit me. They said, oh, come on, there's nothing Indian about you. 
How does that land with you, Roman? He's gobsmacked. He's 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 gone. <laughs> he's gobsmacked. <laughs> no, I restraint because <laughs> in that moment, right? So many things to say back, and it literally you saying that triggers me, and not on you, right? But <laughs> yeah, I've had those moments, and. What do you say? I'm genuinely curious what you said back in that moment because, or what you did in that moment, because I've had several of those and some I didn't respond as I should have. Some three nights later, I couldn't sleep because I'm thinking of all the better or more hilarious ways to have responded. And then some, again, the older you get, the better you get about brushing it off, moving on and shutting them out of your life. Right. So I guess. What happened in that moment for you? Well, I came from a space of compassion, obviously, because I, I was I was in a relationship with someone. And I basically said, I said, well, what do you mean? And they go, come on, seriously, there's nothing Indian about you. And I said, so you think because I have a British accent, because I don't wear a sari, and I don't go to temple every day, that I'm not Indian enough for you to qualify that. And it really hit me. It was a massive lesson because I thought, wow, someone who hasn't even been to India doesn't even know about my culture, and they were white American Californian, can claim to be able to determine whether I am Indian enough. And that was, that opened my eyes to how people move through the world, how some people do. It's very, the parameters for their understanding is very narrow, right? Their capacity to be able to understand the complexity of others is so narrow. And even I have this now, Indian Americans, I'm not the same as even you, Raman. Yeah, you and I have a completely different journey. Even the way we think about stuff will be different. So when people say you're Indian, there are literally millions, and I mean, counting the billions of Indians. Yeah, I was, was going to say one more <laughs> order of magnitude, <laughs> three more orders of magnitude. Yeah. Billions of us who have journeyed and are a kind of hodgepodge of our experiences, our cultures, where our parents were born, the societies we've grown up in, the influences that we've had. To be Indian can mean to be anything, anything, that we are not all the same. And I realized in that moment, being Indian is not an outward action. It's how I feel. I feel Indian. I feel it in my bones that I am from a lineage and a culture that is thousands of years old, thousands of years old. And it comes through in certain ways in my life. And it's not going to come through all of the time, but it's, it's, in, it's in me. And it's not something I have to try and convince other people of. And it just makes me realize that people don't know what they're saying most of the time. They just don't know. They don't have exposure. They have either not been exposed they're just ignorant a lot of the time. And most of the time when someone is saying something to you that appears to be insulting and hurtful, it's simply ignorance. It's simply ignorance. And it's not for us to carry the, the burden of that. Well, that's where compassion comes in, right? So because I'll quote Fight Club, right? We are beautiful and unique snowflakes. Everyone's experience is different, be it of the Indian diaspora, be it if you're a white guy in LA of Polish-Russian descent. And putting people in boxes is one of the most dangerous things we can do because the creation of boxes is a dangerous thing to do. 
It just, mm-hmm. you're creating constructs and assumptions. That's literally what a lot of the rhetoric on the right is in multiple countries around this world, even in India, with a lot of kind of nationalism that's on the rise, right? And so, and it's hard to push back on that with compassion and understanding, but the right move is always, I literally had a friend call me this morning, someone who listens to the show because she's dealing with something at work. And the right move in the moment is actually not the most snarky thing, the best comeback, the aggressive pushback. It's, hang on a second, why do you say that? Why do you think that? And helping people understand that, yeah, it's not cool, but let me help you figure this out the right way so you don't make a dumbass mistake like that again. Yeah. Because you look stupid. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like yeah, that's literally where my passive aggressive bless your heart comes in, right? But it's like, yeah. hang on, let me help you because you sound like an idiot and I love you. <laughs> and anyone I love doesn't get to sound like an idiot in the world. Because I but love that you that takes, much. That takes so much compassion and so much so much wokeness for lack of a better term. Right? Oh like, so no, we don't much. use that word. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I'd be lying if I did that every time. It's easy for me to tell you. Right. But compassion is always the right answer. Even if someone annoys you or pushes all your buttons, where are they coming from? How did they get here? Because it's a bigger problem if they continue to be like that. That's true. Well, well the other really thing true. is also is that you can't be compassionate if you're in a reactive state all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So... Mm-hmm. Are you going to react or are you going to respond, right? And you can't respond to something if you don't kind of cultivate that kind of inner strength and that peace. And also, Raman, it's it's not just about the other person learning. It's also about us learning. Every time that happens, it's an opportunity for us to practice our humanity. It's practice. If we were around people who are exactly the same as us all the time, we wouldn't evolve. So yeah, it's an opportunity for me to practice. And also, I I want to understand human beings. I more often than not find myself talking to people who are completely on the other side of an argument or an opinion, and I come to it with the intention to understand because it's all information. I'm not right. You're not right. Nobody's right. Nobody's wrong. It's all part of one experience. The problem is, is when we label things as right and wrong. And I feel very strongly about this because it's, it's left and right is that we're all pointing fingers at each other and telling each other how to be. And that's not how we're going to come together. How we're going to come together is having shared experiences, right? Laughing together, sharing something that makes us all feel good. And that comes with a desire to understand. So, yeah, I think responding versus reacting and understanding that it's, it's an opportunity. Every, every interaction is an opportunity. That's why it comes into your path. I genuinely believe that. Don't get it right all the time, but I do believe that. <laughs> well, that's why it's a practice, like you said, right? It's just something that we keep working on. Yeah. And the well, only thing boxes and the only thing boxes are good for is packing and moving, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Moving's the worst. <laughs> it is the worst. Even yeah. on the left or the right, I think boxes just do I've I've never felt comfortable checking boxes ever. So yeah. Well, Radhika, we've covered so much with you. And I think you're ready for speed round. What do you think, Raman? Is she ready for speed round? I think she was born ready. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm fired up now. Let's do it. What's one thing about you that no one expects? 
that I've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. That is awesome. How far up did you get? All the way to the top. All the way to the top? Mm -hmm. You're amazing. (laughs) Are you more of a book, movie, or TV person? Mm. Mm, This is not lightning. (laughs) This is... Not speedy. You're not being speedy. I'll I'll reframe it. What is a book, movie, or TV show that has characters that you relate to? Grey's Anatomy. Oh, no one's mentioned that before. I wanted to be a surgeon, remember? All right. What is your favorite mom dish? Mm, Dal. Indian Gujarati dal. Now, you've got to be more specific. Is it makhni? Is it, yeah, masoor? No, it's it's Gujarati dal, Patel Gujarati dal that you do not get in the shops, my dear. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What's your least favorite food? Sea urchin. Hey, hang on. Okay, you're the second person who said that, and that is such a cop out result. Because who likes that? No, come on. And, and that never comes across your. And ne- you are never at a dinner party when someone's like, "Would you like the sea urchin?" What is the? Okay. So you get a do over. What's the? Right. Come on. What's your least favorite food? That's like something you would have to commonly veto when you're at a restaurant or when it's served at a dinner party. What's the veto food? Oh, the veto food. Mm. I'm not a fan of couscous. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's acceptable. I accept that as an answer. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're friends again. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Oh, man. The Dalai Lama. Ooh, yeah. That'd be a really great conversation. I think we would do it very well. (laughs) The last question, Radhika. What does being a modern minority mean to you? Being a modern minority means in every action I take to honor what my ancestors went through for me to be here, to carry that with with dignity because they went through so much and forge a life ahead that would be in honoring them. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, Radhika, thank you so much for just sharing with us and just your experience and your take. I think it's going to mean a lot for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Radhika. This was beautiful. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a wonderful conversation. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. I would argue our show is an American podcast. I feel that in my bones, America is going to become a mosaic, a melting pot, a bowl of chili. But even though I've been in these conversations with all different types of people, majority, minority, male, female, white, black, brown, all sorts of colors. And yet, because we look the way we look, we're seen as an Asian podcast. And I think that ties into everything we're talking about right now. As much as fundamentally and philosophically, I agree we're an American podcast because that is the foundation of this country people will put you into a category based on how you look that's it for now i've been Raman segel and i'm still sharon lee tony remember we're all modern minorities out there we'll talk to you soon